okay that's okay we'll catch up with the men one day one day one day a couple of years ago I read a story about a lioness somewhere in the jungle they captured a video of a lioness out in the wild that has adopted, I think it was a little fawn, a little deer. And this lion was, lioness was taking care of this little deer, which usually the lion would eat the deer for lunch. But over here, she was, mom was taking care of the deer, and it was the most beautiful thing, and they were filming this for a while. And it was something totally transformational. It was not the nature of a lion at all. And the deer was like, lost its mother, and this lioness was raising her. And then the sad part was that the male lion came and ate her up, ate up the deer. That was the end. So when I saw that story, I realized that we know that um, when the Mashiach is going to come, um, the lion and the lamb will lay together. There won't be any more kind of the predatory nature of the animals will go away. And I noticed a very interesting thing. This told me that the women are far more ready prepared for Mashiach than the men are. Because everything in the animal is a, reflect, a reflection of the human. So being that the women are already living in a Mashiach consciousness, so the female lioness was able to raise the, the lamb and was okay. Uh, the men are still lagging behind. That's my st- stinging rebuke for the absence of men at this class. Now that that's the case, uh, we can learn. Um, I, I am going to recommend anybody listening to tonight's class. Even though last week I gave a warning and I told people that you should listen to last week's class only, only if you're ready uh, for some intense conversations, some intense ideas. Uh, last week's t- Monday class, which I gave on Tuesday night, uh, was called The Brightest Darkness. Um, I, I highly recommend listening to that class before you listen to this class. Because this is going to be somewhat of a part two to what we had discussed last week. And in the light of the events that happened over the weekend and are, I guess, unfolding in front of our eyes right now, I am far more confident in that which I said last week, which when I was saying it last week, it was more like, you know, speculation. At this point, I'm almost 100% convinced. I do have to 
say that even though I am using lots of deep and very, very true teachings of Hasidus to base my point, the final, um, the final uh, application that I'm applying it to what is going on around us in the world is still my Chiddush. And if it's my Chiddush, I don't want you to take it with the same seriousness like you take the rest of the shir. You can be your own judge and reach your own conclusions. I just want to lay out some ideas because I think um, that if people can only see the world this way and see what's happening, we will all be far more prepared for what I believe is happening in front of our eyes. Um, okay, that being said, let's, 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 let's just talk. We're going to talk about Hanukkah today, but connecting Hanukkah to the discussion that we had last week with, of course, a lot more insight. The very same ideas that we're discussing in this class, we're also learning fundamentally and deeply in the Thursday night class of last week. The discourse we learned on Thursday night also really worth listening to, even though we haven't gotten yet to these ideas that I'm going to present tonight. The discourse is called Pada B'Shalem Nafshi. It's posted to our website. So again, recommended listening, really, really, really recommended listening is the class of last week called The Brightest Darkness and the class last week called Pada B'Shalem Nafshi, part one. Um, and tonight's class will be The Brightest Darkness, number two. And the Thursday night, this class this week, which will be a continuation of last week's, but I do want to announce that I'm going to be out of town on Thursday night so instead of the class being Thursday night, I'm going to do the class tomorrow night. Uh, if anybody can come, tomorrow night we're going to continue. Uh, it's a few-hour class. But it's fascinating things. I just did not want to leave it without a class. So I'm going to teach tomorrow uh, the continuation of what we learned last week. That have being said, let's dedicate, do a dedication for the class. The class was dedicated by Joel Groden. Um, Joel Groden and his wife. On the paper, they didn't write his, his, his wife's name. So I'm just going to say Mr. and Mrs. Joel Groden. Um, please excuse me for that. And this is Lezecha Nishmas, his son, Yehuda Ar Yaleib, Ben Yosef Moshe. And uh, his yard site is the second day of Tevis, which is going to be on Shabbos, this coming, yard, this, this coming Shabbos. May his neshama have an awesome, great aliyah to the greatest of heights. May um, you only know of simchas. And may he channel lots of brachas down for you and your family and all that you need and all that you want. And may you be reunited with him. The car of Mamish, uh, with the coming of Mashiach that we are hoping, waiting, and expecting momentarily. Um, I forgot to wish everybody a happy Hanukkah. And may this Hanukkah lead, bring... All, bring tremendous, tremendous miracles. And that's what we're going to be talking about. The theme of the class is The miracles that happened in the days of past are occurring in front of our eyes. It just takes a little bit of a broadening of one's mind to be able to notice the miracles. The miracles that are happening now are far more powerful and greater than any miracles in history, in my opinion. It's just that it is in a more subtler way. It's not coming like as a bang, it's in a more subtler way, 
allowing us the ability to be oblivious and ignore them completely, or to realize that Hashem is doing some unbelievable things for us. Okay, um, Hanukkah. To understand all of this and to lead us into this, I'd like to present an idea on Hanukkah. Now, the idea that I'm going to talk about right now, we've discussed in previous Hanukkah classes, but it will serve as an introduction to the idea that we want to introduce. And that is that Hanukkah, we know, was um, developed, or Hanukkah was instituted as a commemoration of the lighting of the menorah in the Beis Amigdash, in the Holy Temple. Yet, even though, because the whole story of Hanukkah, we're not going to review the Hanukkah story, but we know that it's a zecher, it's, an, it's a remembrance of the lighting of the menorah in the Beis Amigdash. Yet, we find some striking differences between the lighting of our menorah that we light today in commemoration of the temple and the menorah that was in the Beis Amigdash itself. And the most um, noticeable difference is our menorah is a menorah of eight, and the Beis Amigdash's menorah was a menorah of seven. A question really it isn't why, how come our menorah is eight if the Beis Amigdash's menorah is seven, because it's a whole different idea. Beis Amigdash had a mitzvah to light the menorah every day, and over there the mitzvah is seven lamps. By us, we are doing something to rem- remember the miracle, persume nisa, to remember the miracle. And the miracle the sages felt would be the best commemorated to bring forth that the, that the oil lasted for eight days. So we want to demonstrate that by every day increasing another lamp so you get to see another day, another day, another day, and another day. And today, wow, all eight lamps. So even though the Beis Amidash wasn't eight lamps, but the idea is the days that were increasing, the days that the miracle lasted. So it's not a question how come our menorah is of eight and there's of seven. What we are exploring over here is that everything has a deeper inner symbolic meaning. So this, what is the symbolism in our menorah being a larger menorah than the menorah in the Beis Amigdash in that that menorah only had seven lamps and our menorah has eight lamps. Another two differences between our, our lamps and the lamps of the Beis Amigdash is that our lamps we light outdoors. In the Beis Amigdash they, they lit the menorah indoors. Um, they lit the menorah inside the temple. What that really means is that they lit the menorah in a holy place. Bichlal, Eretz Yisrael is holy. In general, Israel is holy. Within Israel itself, Yerushalayim is holier. Within Yerushalayim, the Harabayas Temple Mount is even holier. And over there, the, the, the sages go through ten kedushas, ten levels of holiness. Asara kedushas that there are. And then, the second holiest possible place is where the menorah stood. After that is already the Holy of Holies, where only the Ark is. So you go and you, you lie, and where is the menorah lit? In the inner, inner, inner point. Such a holy place. We light our menorah outside. What do we mean we light it outside? So a Jewish, technically you can say, well, we can't light it in the Beis Amigdash, because we don't have a Beis Amigdash. But we could light it inside our, our, our own homes, which we really do light it. But, and our, and our, our homes are called a small Beis Amigdash. Every Jewish home is a small little mini fortress of holiness. It's Kedusha. A Jewish home is a place where mitzvahs are done, Torah is studied, and Shabbos is kept, kosher, all these godly, beautiful things. So a Jewish home is a holy place. But when we light the menorah, we light it according to the essential institution of the sages, 
to light it, what the sages call a Pesach Beisai, and they emphasize one more word, Mi Bachutz, to light the menorah at the entrance of your, of your house outside. So our menorah is lit to the outside. So, and the difference over here is a very deep difference. Inside and outside don't only mean, you know, different location. Outside means that we're lighting it in an unholy place. The, the street represents the wor- a, a place that has not, at least until Mashiach comes, the street is not a holy place. Um, holiness is practiced inside a sanctuary. You go to a temple, you go to a synagogue, you go to a shul, you go to a base medrash. That place, it's an environment of Kedusha. The moment you're walking out into the street, you're exposing yourself to whatever is out there on the street. And out on the street, there's Jew and Gentile. And Gentile, every type of Gentile, every type of person. Some of them a little more refined, some of them less refined. All kinds of people that are out there. In Kabbalistic terminology, it is called Rishus Harabim. Rishus Harabim means a public domain. And public domain in its spiritual meaning means um, a place where everything goes. In Kabbalah, public domain is, is, is symbolizing the realm of the unholy. Meaning a place that is not conforming to the oneness of God. A private domain means a place that recognizes that Hashem is the only reality and everything belongs to Him. And everything is submitted to Hashem. The public means that it's a place of the many, meaning there's lacking a recognition and a submission to God's unity. So that's why the outdoors represents an unholy place. And here we see a tremendous difference that the menorah in the Beis Migdosh was lit indoors, meaning inside a secluded holy place. And the menorah that we're lighting now is lit even though we might be lighting it in our homes, but we are lighting it towards the outside. Towards, or like if you're not lighting it by the doorway to the outside, in Israel they actually light it outdoors in a little glass. They put the menorah and they put it in a little glass container and they light it out outside. Even if we're not lighting it outside, it says you light it by a window, the Gemara says, towards the street. Others are makbid, menorah to light it by a door inside the house. But me'ikar hadin, meaning from the primary halacha, it is supposed to be written, lit to the outside. Another interesting difference between the Beis HaMikdash's menorah and our menorah, the Beis HaMikdash's menorah was lit during the daytime, before it got dark. It was lit before Shkia. You had to complete all the service of the day before sunset. Um, in, and then, even though it burnt all night long, but it was lit during the day. However, the menorah that we light today, we light after sun sets, closer to the, when the stars come out, closer to nighttime. And okay, yes, we're trying to, to light it um, towards the beginning of the night, but we still light it after dark, or clo- when it's getting dark. So we see the same idea. Similar to where the location is, we also see the time. Day and night represent holy and the unholy. Kedusha, holiness, is always compared to light. And unholy and evil and ignorance and all that is considered darkness. And therefore, when we're lighting the menorah outside on Hanukkah, it means it's a time zone that is antithetical to Kedusha, to holiness. So this illustrates a tremendous difference between our lighting of our menorah and the menorah in the Beis Amigdash. 
Also, another thing to take note, in the Migdash itself, they would lit the, base up, the menorah on the right side of the, in the room. Because the menorah stood on the south side of the temple. Now, in south, the direction of south is considered on the right side. Uh, north is considered the left. Because the positioning of front and back, because really it depends which way you're standing. If you're facing west, then it's the opposite. But if you're facing east, your, the south will always be to your right, and north will be to your left. And the order of the way the Torah sees what is considered the front and what is considered the back, you see that it is the front is east. It's actually called Kedem. Kedem means the beginning, the front. And that's uh, where the sun rises. You see that's like the front of the world. The back of the world, Mairev, is where the sun is setting. That's the west. So when we're facing east, even though when you came into the temple, you stood the other way, because the Beis HaMikdush was, you walked in from the east and you went west, but still in positioning of the directions, it doesn't change. The south side is considered the right side. Now, even though there is right and left, both in Kedusha, like there's a Pasik that says, his right hand is under my head, I'm sorry, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. And we know that Avram is compared, is the Hashem's, represents Midas HaChesed, which is the right side. Yitzchak is Midas HaGvura, which is the left side. So there is right and left in holiness. And there is right and left in the unholy as well. Yet, primarily the right side is, on the right, holiness is stronger than the unholy. On the left, the balance is the opposite. The unholy is stronger than the holy. The Kabbalists tell us that the empowerment of the negative forces, of the dark forces in existence within the world, they derive their energy primarily from the left side. And we can actually understand the reason for that, because the right represents revelation. The right side is kindness. So kindness means that Hashem is revealing Himself. Where there is a revelation of the king, the enemies are afraid to come, because the king is very, very strongly pronounced over there. So, on, so that which is against God can't really thrive over there. Even though even on the right side, at the extreme, extreme end of the right, like you find Avram Avinu was on the right side, Yishmael came from him, and we know the Tsarist that we have from Yishmael. So it's not a question whether there could be unholiness on the right, but the unholiness on the right is less than the unholiness that's on the left. Bechlal is just according to me right now. When you think about the unholiness produced by the right side, which are the Muslims, and the unholiness produced on the left side, which were the Christians coming from Esau, the unholiness of the Christian community is to a sense worse than the Muslim because Christianity is considered idolatry. And Islam was never considered idolatry. It was considered because they believe in one God, yet, prophet, whatever. But you see that there is in a certain way, there is more revelation of Hashem. God's unity is more felt on the right side that even the Gentile population on the right, which is coming from, even if it's an unholy, it's still recognizing God's unity. On the left side, in the Esau world, there is a denial of Hashem's unity. Because, and in general, we can also say, looking at the, the, um, the, the world, both here in American politics and Israeli politics, you find that the left even though, again, let's be very clear about this, there are, on the extreme ends of both sides of the political spectrum, you find very, very dark forces on both sides. And on the radical right, you have 
you know, you have neo-Nazism. You have extreme um, um, people that are very, very vicious. Yes, but I think that the opposition to holiness from the left has a certain oomph that the right doesn't have. It's not as, it doesn't, it's not, it's not as strong. Again, it's not as strong. In Israel, for sure, the secularism, the, the fight against Torah and mitzvahs and the observance of, of, of mitzvah and, and so on, on the left is much stronger than on the right. And the reason for that is the right is a, there is more of a presence, of open presence of Hashem, and on the left there isn't. Comes out in the Beis HaMikdash, where did they light the menorah? On the right side. So again, it's indoors, it's the daytime, and it's on the right side. You have all aspects of Kedusha being emphasized. However, when it comes to our menorah that we light, we light the menorah after dark, we light the menorah on the left side of the doorway, opposite the mezuzah, if we're lighting it by the door. And lastly, we're lighting the menorah, mamish or almost in the street, which the public domain represents an unholy place. So what is the reason for all these differences? And the explanation is one thing. And that is, there's two types of light. And there's two types of, when you're shining light somewhere, and you're bringing enlightened light to enlighten, there is a, the question is, who is your target audience? In the base, in the base Amigdash, the target audience was those that are already enlightened, those that are already inspired to increase their holiness, to increase their connection to Hashem. Every day when the high priest or the Kohen, whoever it was, lit the menorah, he drew down a powerful revelation of Hashem into who? Into the Jewish souls. So someone who is sitting and praying in the Beis HaMikdash, imagine, a Yid comes to the Beis HaMikdash, and he's davening, and he's trying to connect to God, and he's making all his meditation and all his energy to try to really daven well, he's davening mincha, and he's trying to have a lot of kavana and so forth. At that very moment, the Kohen is standing and lighting the menorah, and suddenly a powerful infusion of godly revelation and fire into his neshama, and suddenly this person who's davening suddenly goes berserk because his soul flares up like a candle flaring up and he's experiencing such powerful longing to cleave, to connect to God that he had never experienced all his life. Why? Because he's in the Beis HaMikdash while the Kohen was lighting the menorah and when the Kohen lights the menorah he's igniting the souls of the Jewish people. And it's not just felt in the Beis HaMikdash. It was felt to Jews all, all over that every day the lighting of the menorah caused an infusion of extra light, clarity, understanding, wisdom of Torah, a love of God in their neshamas. But who did it reach? It was meant to reach those that are already inspired and enlightened, those that are already connected to Kedusha, to increase their bond. And we know, the rule is even by Hanukkah we say, Malin B'Kodesh, that we go higher in holiness. Holiness has no... Has no, has no, has no ceiling. You can go higher and higher and higher and higher. So you can continue lighting the menorah more and more and more and more and more to enlighten those that are enlightened with greater enlightenment, with greater understanding, with greater avas Hashem, greater love, greater awe, and we can go on and on. They go from strength to strength, deeper and higher and higher in their connection to the Ein Sof, to God Himself. Fine. That's what the menorah is all about. So it's lit, it, that's why it's lit during the day. It's lit 
on the right side and it's lit indoors because that's where the holy that's where the holy resides. The point of the lights of Hanukkah have a whole have a complete it has a different mission. Its target of where it is meant to infuse light is to entities and beings that are in the dark. The point of the light of Hanukkah is to infiltrate into the domain of people and forces and beings that stand in opposition to God's unity. Those and even those that sometimes are completely ignorant and even antithetical, even at war with Kedusha, and to break into those ranks and to illuminate and to shine and to bring light to the darkest places. That's what Hanukkah is all about. And the reason why is because before Hanukkah happened, the unholy was an offense. The forces of darkness in the world broke, broke the boundaries between the holy and the unholy. They came into our territory. They came all the way in. They breached the walls of the temple, the Greeks, with their idolatry, with their pagan culture, with whatever they represented, which was anti-holiness and Kedusha. They wouldn't suffice with building their own temples and their own stadiums and their own whatever contests in their own world. They wanted to come to us, into our territory, into the boundaries of Kedusha into our shul, all the way into the source of holiness, which is the Beis Amigdash, and contaminate, and they, and they got in. They went into the Beis Amigdash, Upartsu, we sing in the Yavanim, Nigbetsu Alai, Upartsu Chaymois Migdalai, they broke open the, the walls of my towers. And, now, and where did they go? They went to the most sensitive thing, they went to the menorah. The menorah is the source of holiness and enlightenment. The Timu, they brought their contamination into, not just to the menorah, but to the oil, that's the source of light. So they had the chutzpah, to break into our world, to be contaminated our world. So now that we, when we fought back and we gained the upper hand, now it was a time not just to fight a defensive war, but to go into offense. Every year on Hanukkah, we breach the wall that stands between Kedusha and the unholy, will infiltrate into their territory and we spray the darkness with light. We, 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 we blessed powerful, we blast powerful f- lights, powerful energies of holiness into the unholy. And when we do that, we weaken and we weaken and we weaken. And slowly but surely, year after year, we do away with the darkness. And the world after Hanukkah is way, way brighter than the world before Hanukkah, every Hanukkah. And you realize that the world today is different than yesterday. We've gotten rid of, we don't even realize the effect that we have in eliminating the forces of evil when we like. It's the most powerful, most potent thing is the light of Hanukkah because it goes to the left side, it goes outside into the public domain, it goes out into the darkness of night and over there it shines light. And that's why we know that people that are not inspired by anything Jewish, Hanukkah has a very special power. The reason why, for instance, you see the Lubavitcher Rebbe has instituted so much to do public menorah lighting. Some people just totally don't get it. 
Then in the Chapsach, okay, well, why the public understand Pasume Nisa, but to go and make these big menorah lightings and malls and town squares and Times Square and uh, by the Eiffel Tower and places like that. What are you crazy or something? Judaism doesn't belong, but these don't get what's going, what's really going on over here. First of all, the mere fact that a menorah is being lit out there is in terms of its spirituality, it's breaking, it's breaking the forces of darkness in an unprecedented way. But in addition to that, there are Jews that nothing else touches them. Their first connection to Judaism is they see that lamp. They see that menorah that touches their soul. It's a very interesting statement in the Gemara. The Gemara says, Wicks and oil that you're not allowed, that you don't use for Shabbos kindling, you use it for for Hanukkah. Which means, simply it means, that there's a parak called Bameh Madlikin, which, which gives us a list of what kind of oil and what kind of wicks you're allowed to use for lighting Shabbos candles. Because we don't want a person to use an inferior oil or a bad wick, because if you light it, it's not going to give you a clean fire. And being that the, the Shabbos candles are, made, are meant to give light for Shalom Bayez, so that people should... The house should run peacefully and smoothly. If the wick is going to start becoming bad, if it's going to burn out, or if it's not, we're scared that the person might fix it and thereby uh, desecrate the Shabbos. So that therefore, the, but it says on Hanukkah we have no problem. Hanukkah for the menorah you can use even the wicks and even the oil that is not permissible. And for the menorah you're allowed to use them because the reason is menorah we're not afraid that we're going to fix it because you're not allowed to use the light of the menorah. Menorah is, we know it's Kodesh, it's holy. So even on Shabbos, we're not afraid that the person is going to fix it. So whatever it is, that, that's a simple meaning. But in Hasidic Shesfarim, in places it says, in many places, that what it really means is, Psilo Yisushmanim, the oils and the wicks are referring to bodies and souls of Jews, who Shabbos, the holiness of Shabbos doesn't turn them on, doesn't reach them, doesn't ignite them. Madlikim ben Bechanaka. Hanukkah, even a, a soul that's trapped in darkness, even a soul that's stuck in all kinds of deep, deep, deep impurities, deep, deep contamination from terrible sins, from terrible upbringings, all kinds of things that are mamish blocking this person. Make an attempt on Hanukkah. What will not touch this person anytime, Hanukkah has the power to penetrate and to warm even the iciest of hearts, even the coldest of people, you can touch on Hanukkah. Hanukkah is extremely powerful. That's the meaning of what, for all the differences, why Hanukkah is done outside on the left side, because it's meant not to inspire those that are inspired already. Of course, Hanukkah adds tremendous light to every Jew, but it's specifically designated for the Jews who are, or for entity for the Jews, and even to blast into the non-Jewish world and to eliminate the darkness. What is the darkness? That which is against Hashem and against God's unity. That which is immoral, that which is unethical, that which is negative in this world, that which stands against God's will in this world to be eliminated. That is what Hanukkah is all about. This will also explain now the other difference of the Hanukkah menorah and the Shabbos menorah. Why the Hanukkah menorah, sorry, the, the, the menorah in the temple and the menorah of our menorah. The menorah in the temple had seven lamps and our Hanukkah menorah has eight. It is known, and we have discussed this in earlier classes, that the difference between seven and eight is brought down in Sefer Kliyakar, a commentator on the Chumash, which generally sticks more to Pshat, but sometimes he throws in some mystical ideas. So in Kli Yakar on Parsha Shemini, he brings forth an amazing idea that 
the number seven and eight, that seven represents nature. When we look at the world, we see that everything in the world is made up of seven. God created the world seven days. Six days, Shabbos. But Shabbos is part of the seven days of creation. And then we have um, also cycle of time, seven years, and that's a cycle, that's a Shemitah cycle, and starts again. So time is, is broken into, into segments of seven, and then it starts over again. Same as also space. We also have seven. We have the six directions, the four directions up and down, and then we have the point in the middle, which is also part of the seven. Um, so you got seven in space and in time. You also have seven, seven continents. And you have seven, 70 nations, which are really offshoots of the seven nations who lived in the land of Canaan. So the world is a world made up of seven. Now when we say, and that's why nature is seven. Now when we say seven, it's very important to understand that we don't just mean that the world is seven and the godly is eight. No. Seven contains also holiness and godliness. Because Shabbos, for instance, is the seventh day. And Shabbos is called Shabbos Kodesh. It's called Holy Shabbos. So you see, Shabbos is Kedush. But the holiness of Shabbos is the holiness of God that is already assimilated into nature and that is a source of nature. In other words, what it really means is Hashem contracts Himself to the parameters and the boundaries of creation. It's a self-imposed limitation. Of course, Hashem is not limited by anything. But it's a self-imposed limitation where Hashem constricts His light to operate within a certain system. We all know that the power of Teva, of nature, is also a godly power. But still, it operates within a certain conformed system, and that's the holiness of Shabbos. Shabbos is the revealed, during the week you have the concealed nature is dominating, you don't see the godliness in it. On Shabbos you can discover the elokus, that which is godly within nature, but it's still the holiness of nature. Number eight represents the infinite dimension, the transcendental. That's why miracles come from the number eight. Eight represents God's infinite light that is boundless, that has no limitations, that, that doesn't conform with any system. It just is pure, godly, infinite, boundless light. And that's where when a a miracle happens that breaks nature, it's because the energy is coming from the eighth dimension. And that's why the Kliyakar says that when did God reveal himself in the Mishkan? There were first seven days of preparation, and then the parsha begins, Vahibayomashmini was the eighth day, because that was what the Besamin Mishkan was so great that we had a revelation from the eighth dimension. God in the Besamigdash, the Besamish was not only the holiness of creation, there was the revelation of Hashem as he transcends the infinite light touched down into this world. And when you came over there, you experienced miracles. It was holier, it wasn't constricted. And we find the Jewish people, only the Jewish people, the, the nations of the world are seven, are, are, are seven, 70 nations. The Jewish people, even though we also had 70 descendants of Yaakov, that's because we are entering into the world and we have to like kind of assimilate within creation and so that we can fix the world as we discussed in last week's class. But the Jew has a point within him that utterly transcends nature. Where do we get that point, which is connected to the number eight? Where do we get that point when we have, when a Jewish baby is circumcised on the eighth day? The reason why the circumcision takes place on the eighth day, the sages tell us, so that it should pass one Shabbos. What is the idea of passing Shabbos? We have, we have to go through the holiness of Shabbos, 
And then we have to leap, take a quantum leap, because the distance between seven and eight is not the distance of one, of one digit. The distance between seven and eight is an infinite distance. We're jumping from the constricted and the limit to the purely infinite, to the utterly godly. And the, and the baby, when, when a Jewish baby has a bris, bris means a covenant. Covenant means a bonding. The Jew is bonding with God on the level of the infinite. That's why our people are a miraculous people. That's why... We sing at Pesach, what's going on today in the UN, which we're going to discuss later in the class. What's happening now in the world, ganging up on the Jewish people and trying to do whatever they can to stop and to stifle. It will not work, it hasn't worked, it will not work. Because the Jewish people are unbreakable. Because our connection to God is all eternal. We are here forever. Other nations come and go. The Greeks aren't here, the Romans aren't here, and so on and so forth. But Am Yisrael, Chai V'Kayam. Why? Because we are connected and bond and, and, and attached to that which is infinite and that which is beyond and has no limitation and therefore can never ever be broken and can never be destroyed. That's the number eight. The eighth dimension of the Jewish people. And that's the secret of Hanukkah. The holiness of Hanukkah is the energy from the miraculous, from the transcendental, from the infinite. And the Jewish people found that in that jug of oil, the course of oil that they found burned for eight days. There was a great symbolic meaning. The reason why it burned for eight days is because this oil was coming from the eighth dimension. It was coming from that transcendental infinite element of God's infinite power. And that's why it really could have lasted forever. But in concept, it showed itself by burning for eight days to display the idea that this is coming from it's from the eighth day, it's from the covenant. And that's why we find an interesting thing. The Torah says that it was sealed with the seal, the, the Gemara says it was sealed with the seal of the Kohen Gadol. What is so powerful about the Kohen Gadol? A Kohen represents holiness. But the Kohen's holiness is the holiness of seven. The Kohen Gadol's holiness is the, Kohen, is the holiness of eight. And you see it clearly because the Kohen Gadol wears eight garments. That means he's enveloped, he's touching that dimension of eight. Also, the Kohen Gadol goes into the Holy of Holies. And it is explained, the Medrash says, I think it's the Medrash in the beginning of Parshas Achremos. It says, Bezois Yavoya Aaron, that with this Aaron should come, meaning the Kohen Gadol should go into the into Holy of Holies. And the Medrash asks, Be'ezes chus, what merit does the Kohen Gadol enter into the Holy of Holies? And the Medrash says, Bishchus hamila, in the merit of the brismila, of the covenant. So the Kohen Gadol is going in, connecting to the idea of brismila, which is the eighth dimension, which is the miraculous connection of a Jew to God. That's why he goes to the Kodesh HaKadosh. So when we found that oil, it wasn't just regular oil, it was Kohen Gadol oil. It was oil that is represented and connected to that, the eighth dimension. Now the question is, why? Oh, now, now here's the idea. In order to be able, the difference between seven and number eight is seven is holiness, but it has certain limitations and boundaries where it can manifest, where it can show itself, how it can reveal itself, because it's limited light, so it needs certain requirements and certain preparations for the light to manifest. And it discriminates. It says, this is a holy person. This is a person who's ready for the light. So therefore, I can, I can register in this person's soul. I can illuminate, I can enter this person's heart, because this is a more sensitive heart. This is a more refined heart. But this person is a very vulgar, crude, lowly human being, and this heart I'm not able to go into. 
So the limited light has certain discriminations. It can only go, for example, Shabbos. Only a Jew can keep Shabbos. Not a Jew can not keep Shabbos. It has its borders. It has its boundaries. It has its limitations of where it can go or where it can't go. So therefore, the light of seven, where did it, you can only light it, where can you bring down that holiness? Only in a place that is already holy. When the light comes in, it adds Kedusha. It increases the holiness. Not so when you want to go out and break into, break down the barriers and, and penetrate and, 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 and infiltrate into that which is dark and that which is inherently resistant to Kedusha and to holiness. For that you need a much, you need an infinite power. Only the infinite light of God can, doesn't have anything that can block it that can stop it, even the darkest evil, even the ugliest of ugly, cannot stop this light from going there. And that's the wine, number eight, Hanukkah, in order, that's it. The, our menorah wouldn't work if it's a menorah of seven. Because for the job that we need to do with our Hanukkah menorah, and that is to shine away the darkness to the point where we transform darkness to light, in order for us to do that, we need an infinite power. So the light from number seven would not be able to accomplish that. So we need to reach higher and reach into the eighth dimension and Dafka that accomplishes that. Now wow, how is it in Hanukkah that we've reached such a deep level? That we've reached number eight? And the answer is, within the human experience, within the human soul itself, within the human experience, within the human soul itself, there are, just like we spoke that in the divine, there is two levels. In the divine, there is the infinite level of God. And then there is a more constricted um, um, level, number seven and number eight. The same is within a human being's soul powers. There is also a more limited level of neshama. And then there is a transcendental infinite part of our soul. See, our souls inherently are a piece of God from above. And therefore, our neshamas are infinite. As it's one with Hashem and Hashem. A spark of the infinite is also infinite. So we are one with God. Had our neshamas, however, come down in our bodies, not being filtered and not being limited, we would not be able to function as human beings over here because we would just be, we would destroy the world with our light. In order that we shouldn't destroy the world, because that's not the purpose, that we should destroy the world with our light. So God created a powerful filter. And that infinite energy and that infinite, powerful, raging fire of our soul is not revealed in the body. What's that filter? That's the filter of the consciousness and the conscious mind. The mind acts as a powerful barrier and as a filter. It keeps back all that infinite in the subconscious or in the superconscious. And externally we are operating, even in our Jewishness, through what we call kochos hanefesh. Kochos hanefesh, the powers of our soul, what are our Intellect, emotion. We study, we learn. And as, a, as we study and we learn about Hashem, we get excited based on our understanding. Now really in our soul of souls, our connection to God is not limited to understanding, it's infinite. But it's, all, it's, it's essential. Our souls are just one with the ain't soul. But once that's blocked and we're coming into a body, kind of that part of our soul is, this, is, is kind of shut off from our consciousness. And we are operating, we, have, we learn, we understand and appreciate Hashem's beauty, His greatness, His goodness, His kindness, His benevolence. And as a result of that, we, through our mind, we develop emotions, feelings towards Hashem, and that later translates into our thoughts, speech, and action, and we do mitzvahs. So we are generally in our Jew- Jewishness 
operating from the seven, not from the eighth dimension. We're operating from the limited powers of our soul, not from our infinite, infinite inner boundlessness. That is all good when things are running smooth. When the Jews were faced at that time with this great decree from the Greeks, where the Greeks came into, the Jew, into, into our homeland, into Eretz Yisrael, and tried to impose upon us their will and their garbage and their ideas and wanting to stop us from our connection with God. So at the beginning they were pretty successful. But here's the thing, the rational mind cannot, doesn't have the power, with all of its convictions of holiness being very good, it's not going to lead you to give your life up. It's not going to lead you to, 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 to self-sacrifice. Because if God is so good, what's the goodness of God? The greatness of God is that being close to Him is so wonderful and so good, but if being close to Him is going to destroy me, well, the, 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 the rational mind will never justify the self-destruction based on what? Its appreciation. Because the only reason I want to get, go to, go, get, get close to God from the perspective of reason and logic is getting close to God is going to be good for me. But if getting close to God is going to destroy me completely, why would I want it? So, Mesira Snefesh does not come from the logic of a Jew. Where does Mesira Snefesh come from? Self-sacrifice. The, 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 um, the martyrdom of the, Jewish, of the Jewish people in the days of that war. Hannah and her seven sons, like we read the stories, the heroic stories of Hanukkah. Matisyo and his, and his sons, the Kohen Gadol led. This was a revolt led by the Kohen Gadol. Let's think about it. We spoke about the Kohen Gadol before. You see, when they went out to fight the war against the Greeks, I spoke, I spoke about this on many Hanukkah classes, this was a lose-lose situation. There was no way they were going to win this war. It was impossible. There was no strategist who was going to tell you that there was even a tiny chance for them to beat the mighty Greeks. Greeks were the strongest army and they were a clan of a couple of guerrillas, uh, uh, people trying to fight a guerrilla war. I'm talking about a small little group. How in the world were they going to defeat this mighty army? No way. There was no chance. So why did they fight? The answer is it was totally insane. This war was a totally insane. What really happened was, you poked, the, 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 because we couldn't keep our Yiddishkeit, and if you want to snuff my connection from God, with God out, I cannot bear that. So therefore, even if it doesn't make sense to me, even if it's totally insane, I'm going to fight you tooth and nail. If I have to die, I'm going to die. That's, irre- that, that's irrelevant. I'm going to fight and fight. Why? Because of the, your, the, my connection to Hashem that is absolute, and it will not... God forbid you cannot disconnect me from Hashem. That's the insanity of the neshama that transcends reason. That's not normal. That comes from a Jew's bris milah, from his covenant that he makes with God. When we make that covenant with God, it's not based on reason, because it's a baby who's eight days old. He has absolutely no idea what's going on. If you think that for a covenant, making a covenant with God, wait till the child grows up, and he can have some level of appreciation, and then he will decide, based on his mind, if he wants to make a covenant, or he doesn't want to make a covenant. What's the business of taking a little child who knows nothing but to, to make the soil a diaper, and to make this child give him a connection to God? And the answer is, this, <laughs> the child has an neshama. And totally beyond all explanations and reason, this child is bound up with God with an absolute bond. That's what the bris represents. That's the Jewish connection to God. That leads us to go in fire and in water for God's sake. When the Jews fought that war, they exposed the miraculous, infinite 
eighth dimension in their own neshama, because they were not operating from their number seven, they were operating from their transcendental infinite power of their soul, and that's why they were able to capture that infinite number eight boundless light that has no limitations and no boundaries and can destroy all the darkness in the world and obliterate it completely. That's the idea of Hanukkah. That's its power. That's its beauty. However, here I come to a question. Till now, whatever I spoke now, we've discussed in previous years. But I use that as an introduction to reach out into this idea much deeper. Because according to this, it still begs the question. I understand that we have now a light in which we can blast through the darkness. But that does not explain why we have to light the menorah outdoors. Why can't we light the menorah indoors and the light of the menorah will go outdoors and will reach the four corners of the world? Because it's so powerful. Why do I have to lechatchila, meaning originally go and light it in the outdoors? Why do I have to light the menorah after dark? I can light the menorah when it's still day, and it will burn the whole night. Almost seems like if I'm lighting it after dark, or if I'm lighting it outside, it almost seems like that Hanukkah is only for those that are in the dark. So what are you going to say? People that are already inspired Good Jews who learn Torah all day, Talmidei Chachamim, scholars, rabbis, people who serve Hashem, they're with, with great love and fear, and they're connected to God in a great way. No, Hanukkah is not for you. Hanukkah is only for someone who is struggling with extreme darkness, with demons, and who knows what. This person has Hanukkah? Absolutely not. Hanukkah is for every Jew. It gives infusion of light, of inspiration for everybody. The power of Hanukkah is, it's not limited only to the whole and the inspired, it can even reach those that are generally unreachable all year long. So then I understand, what does that mean? Light your menorah inside holiness, so you can bring the light in for everybody, and, but it's not going to stop outside the Beit Samigdash, it's not even going to stop by the boundaries of Yerushalayim, it's not even going to stop by the boundaries of Israel, it's going to go all the way to Australia, the light is going to go across the whole world, and will illuminate. What's the reason why I have to light it outdoors? What's the reason why I have to light it after dark? I can light it during the day. Why do I have to light it on the left side? I can light it on the right side, and its light will carry over into the left side. Spill over onto the red, red, left side. So it still doesn't explain this idea. So here I want to get to something very, very fundamental, very deep, and very, very important. See, the battle between holiness and the unholy is an ongoing battle. These are two forces. When Yaakov and Esau came out of the womb, the Navi, the prophet, whoever it was, shame, said to Rivka, said to Rebecca, that inside your womb is coming out two forces that will be at each, at each other's throats their entire life, two empires representing two ideologies. They're going to fight with each other. And then in the end, right, it's going to be up, it's going to be like a seesaw, one is going to rise, the other is going to fall, up and down and up and down, a vicious, a vicious struggle. But in the end, the younger one is going to emerge triumphant. And the older one is going to serve his younger brother. What does that really mean? It's the ongoing battle between Sitra the Kedusha and Sitra Achra, which means the side of holiness and the side of the unholy. Yaakov is the champion of Sitra the Kedusha, of the, of the side of Kedusha, of holiness, and Esau, Esau 
is the champion. He's the one who is representing the force of the unholy. And they're struggling and wrestling with each other like Yaakov wrestles with the angel of Esau, of Esau all night long. They're fighting and they're wrestling and they're kicking up a dust storm. But finally, as the dust settles, when it becomes morning, everything is all clear. The angel of Esau has to bless Yaakov. That was a story we learned just, just two weeks ago. So what does that mean? There's a fierce battle. It's a fierce battle. Let's try to measure the success of that battle. So here's the thing. Let's really go back up in history and say like this. At the early, early beginning of time, by the, by the sin of the tree of knowledge, the unholy gained a major, major footing in this world. The unholy stepped in, the snake stepped in, and basically conquered the entire world. Can you believe it or not, God, who the creator of the whole world, was pushed away from his creation that he created. It's the saddest story, but I don't even know if realizes how sad that was. God, who's the king over the world, it's a king that was chased off his throne on the very first day of his kingdom. That's how vulnerable Hashem has made himself kind of in creation. And then, because of the sins of consequential generations, God became more and more and more and more and more removed from his palace, from where he desired to be most, and that is this physical world. And God went up higher as the Medrash describes how each sin, each generation caused the divine presence to leave farther and farther away. But then began, dawn became, it started, it was daybreak and, and it started to get a little bit of light in this dark world. And that was in the days of Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu was the first one who began shining light, bringing Hashem back into this world. Meaning he began teaching, recognizing Hashem as the king over the world and teaching monotheism to whoever will lend them an ear to listen. And so the teaching started growing stronger, and then a little family was developed, and the little family grew into a larger family, and the larger family became a whole people. And it took seven generations, however, until God gained back a footage in this world. And that was at the, when the, when, at the giving of the Torah, God had a people which were willing to receive him, willing to worship him, willing to recognize him and consider him in every aspect of their life and build within their lives and in their environment a home for God to live in them, which manifested in the building of the Mishkan. So we can say really that God's first real conquest in this world was when they built the Mishkan. That's when Hashem finally managed to rest in this lower world, to kind of reside here, which was the intention of why He created the world in the first place. So that was the first accomplishment in holiness. Fast forward, the next major state in the conquest of holiness, making its advance in ultimately, because the ultimate desire for Hashem is that he should, His light should, should be expressed, His presence should be revealed across the entire world, into four corners of the earth, and evil will be vanquished forever. And only goodness and holiness will shine all over the world. And everybody and all of mankind will serve him. The next stage, the second stage in this conquest happened when? By King Solomon. When Shlomo HaMelech built the Beis Amigdash, that was stage number two. Because now God wasn't anymore in a mobile home. God had finally found a permanent residence on a temple mount in a city called Jerusalem in Eretz Yisrael, that's where God found his place. From there, he will reveal his kingship and his, and his do, dominion over the world, the sovereignty over the world. And from there, all of mankind will receive God's blessings and all of mankind will eventually serve him. So King Solomon was an amazing, and it was a time when there was no war. And Shlomo HaMelech, we know, his fame and his renown and his power was 
from one across the globe, from one end of the world to the other end of the world. But it didn't last forever. As soon as Shlomo HaMelech passed away, things started working in the opposite direction. Sages say an interesting thing, that Shlomo HaMelech was the 15th generation from, when, from Avram Avinu. And they compare Shlomo HaMelech's kingdom to the moon. And they say in general idea, very, very powerful idea. You see, our world is considered the night. Um, because the higher worlds are full of light, they're considered the day. But our world down here is the night. And what illuminates in the night? The moon illuminates during the night. And it says like this, that the first, that the first, when you look at the moon, the moon is dark, it doesn't have any light, it needs to receive light from the sun. But the way it receives its light from the sun is that the first day of the month, it receives a tiny little, little glimmer of light. And then it begins, I mean, obviously we're talking about not the moon in essence, the moon is always, we're talking about it at least as the, as the view from earth is, because that's what God wants us to see, is that the first, the first day of the month, a tiny little, like a little banana, a little, little, thin, little bit of light. And then it increases from day to day until the 15th of the month. So the Zohar says 15 days, that's why it took 15 generations. From Avram until Shlomo Melech is 15 generations. By the time the 15th generation came around, God's light was shining on this world with its full glow. The attribute of kingship, of Malchut, of Hashem's kingship, was receiving the light of the Ein Sof in the most powerful way and reflecting it on the world. And the power of holiness was so strong. Never in the history was there such a manifestation of holiness over the unholy. Now it wasn't that the unholy was completely eliminated, destroyed. It still existed, but they were hiding in caves. They were not, they wouldn't dare because Kedusha was so powerful that they wouldn't even stick their heads out of their caves to God forbid even think of making an assault, of trying to fight against the power of Kedusha because it was so strong. However, after Shlomo Melech, the moon started working in the opposite direction, like we see the second half of the month, and it begins to get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. The kings, the descendants of Shlomo were not tzaddikim like him, weren't, weren't righteous people, or most of them, and God's light started diminishing from this world. It led to the destruction of the first temple, then it led to the destruction of the second temple, and the world plunged back into darkness. Now, as great as it was in the days of Shlomo Melech, as a result of the Jewish people going into exile and purifying the world, this time from inside out. Because as we spoke last week, Jewish people scattered all over the world and we work our way through the, through the kishkas. We enter into the innards of all of creation all across the world and infuse holiness through the Torah mitzvahs that we do. And our sensitivities and our godly recognition rubs off on all the nations. We transform the world from inside out. Eventually when the Mashiach comes the light that is going to be the revelation of Mashiach is going to make Shlomo HaMelech's kingdom and reign look like a joke. The godliness that's going to radiate in the days of Mashiach is going to be far superior, and this time it's going to be La'ad Olenetzach Netzachim. Evil will be eradicated and destroyed forever and ever. V'nigla Kvayd Hashem and the glory of God is going to be revealed. V'ra'u Kalbasar and all flesh will see Kipi Hashem Diber that God has spoken. Now, so we have now, we can basically say that we can summarize. There are three stages in godly and divine occupation, so to speak. I don't want to say occupation, or uh, that's what is being accused. In, in God's manifesting and, and, and finally re, um, achieving um, his, 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 uh, his, his desire of, of revelation. The reason why I'm calling it of a conquest 
is because the enemy, the unholy, had conquered that which is initially godly, and we reconquering what has belonged to us all along, okay, which is the whole world. But there's three stages to that. Stage number one, Mishkan. Stage number two, Shlomo HaMelech, Beis HaMikdash. Stage number three, Mashiach. So I wanted to hear something very, very profound and something very deep. It's a Kabbalistic idea, but I think this will shed light after we're done in such an amazing way. So it says in Kabbalah, an interesting idea, that these three stages of the godly revelation is we, we, we're using the moon as, as the example. So it's interesting. Initially it says that the moon was as large as the, as the sun. When Hashem created the world, He created Shnei HaMa'oras HaGadolim. He created two luminaries that were equally big. Then Hashem made the moon small. So it says in Kabbalah that when Hashem, and you see it also reflected in Gemara, we see if God ever sinned, you know, that's the question, if God ever sinned, it was when He made the moon small. How do we know that? Hashem says on Rosh Chodesh, offer a special on every Rosh Chodesh, it can be this Friday, offer a special karban chatas, a sin offering, to bring a kapara, to bring an atonement, whatever that means for God, an atonement that I made the moon small. So what does that mean? Obviously we understand. When God made the moon small, what it really meant is that He hid Himself completely from the creation. He made the capacity of us to receive godly light very, very, very little, very small. And as a result of Hashem's light being removed from the world, God's presence being hidden in the world, what happens in the vacuum, in the empty space of God not being here? All the venomous snakes and scorpions, all the forces of evil and darkness, all the killers, murderers, monsters, all the Hitlers and Stalins and, and brutal dictators and suffering and all that which is, it's all because it's nighttime. If it would be day all along, you know, the thieves, the killers, the robbers, they, 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 get, they come out and prowl at night. By day they're afraid. So in God's light, if Hashem would not have made the moon very small, the deeper, deep Hasidic interpret- meaning of that is, the moon represents the attribute of Malchus. Malchus is Hashem's manifestation in this world. And here's an amazing thing. God reduced the light of Malchus. What does that mean? I know this is a very deep concept and we don't have the time to really elaborate on it. But what it means is simply as follows. If God, the creator of the world, would be fully, meaning, let me say, when I say God, I mean, if the divine attribute that Hashem spoke in which He's creating the world would be fully in tune with God's truth and what's Hashem's truth, that He is and there's none but Him, then that energy couldn't possibly create a world that would be so ignorant of God. Because the divine truth would be oozing out from the creative life force. And it would be spilling into the creation. And it would be impossible for a created being not to sense the reality of God. So what does Hashem have to do? So what He does is He blinds Himself. Not Himself, but the power of Him that is invested in creation, he blinds it. Diminishes it, diminishes it, diminishes it, until it's as if God himself is wearing blindfolds. He himself is not seeing the truth that he is and there's none but him. That's what we mean that Sfiras HaMalchus, the attribute of Malchus, the moon has been reduced. When God is kind of playing along the game as if there's possible for something else to exist and other powers, obviously the creations are, 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 feel free to uh, ignore Hashem. And then you have evil and the like.
So the, according to Kabbalah, that means in order to fix the world, Malchus has to be re... Malchus needs to be... It's dark and it's poor. Malchus now needs to be re-enlightened. And that's the entire point of Torah mitzvahs and all the godliness that we do in the spiritual realms. We are drawing light down into the Shekhinah, thereby enriching the Shekhinah and restoring her light. The levels of restoration and the levels of enlightenment in Malchus will later reflect in how enlightened the world is, how godly conscious the world is. Make sense? The more Malchus is enlightened, the more the creations are filled with divine awareness. And this operates in three stages. The first stage was when we built the Mishkan. So Kabbalists say, and I'm going to say this very briefly, what basically happened at that point was, we brought Malchus back to her original state. She is not blocked anymore. She receives all the light that she initially had when she was as big as the sun. Now, obviously, it didn't mean that the moon became as big as the sun, but conceptually, Malchus was enriched with whatever was taken away from her when God actually created the world. Now, it was re, re, reintroduced into Malchus. And that's why there was a powerful presence of God within the world. In the same way, like it was the first day of creation, you find. Hashem was in Gan Eden, powerful light. Hashem says, Basi Lagani, I came back down to my garden when he built the base of Mikdash. When the Mishkan was built, I'm back home again. So we're back to where things were at the beginning. Okay. The next stage, it says, however, is giving Malchus, which was the time of when Shlomo Melech built the world, built the base of Mikdash, was giving Malchus more than what she was lacking. Giving Malchus what's called affluence. Affluence, richness, wealth, is when you give somebody more than what they need. And what is considered what you need, what you were accustomed to. If you were one time accustomed to, to, certain, to certain comforts and it's taken away from you, it's considered a need. In tzedakah, it's considered a need. If you, when you give tzedakah, how much are you obligated to help someone? Let's say you have no one else to help. This is the only person, you're living on an island, this is the only person you can give tzedakah to. How much are you obligated to help them? So the Gemara says an interesting thing, you have to give dai machsoro, how much they're lacking. So how much are they lacking? Whatever they were used to. If the person was used to eating just a little bread and, 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 uh, and a little butter every day, that's all you have to give them. If they were used to having rib steak and whatever, then that's what you have. And the finest wines, you're obligated to give it to them because that's what they were accustomed to. But the Gemara says you're not, consi- you're not obligated to make them rich. That means giving him steak and the fine wines is not making him rich. This is what he needs, he or she needs. Rich means you give them plenty, they have enough for them, their grandchildren, great-grandchildren, they have endless, they have boundless, that's called being wealthy. So it says that when Shlomo HaMelech was king, the attribute of Malchus was filled with affluence. She became rich. The light, the godly light that was shining in the Shekhinah, in Malchus, and consequently into the world, was not the light that was originally shining, but the infinite light of God that which is infinite and boundless. And now, finally, if that's the case, so what's Mashiach's light? What's going to be Mashiach? The third dimension. So the Kabbalists say a fascinating idea. And they say that the Gemara says that there's something called chesed. And the Gemara asks, what's the difference between kindness and tzedakah? And the Gemara says like this, kindness, tzedakah is only to the poor. Tzedakah you have to give to the poor. To a rich man you don't have to give tzedakah. 
But chesed is to the rich and to the poor alike. The rich people, you also give chesed. Now the question is, to a rich man, if he's truly rich, what can you give him? If he's really rich. If it means giving him more money, that means if it's something that now that you're increasing to him is adding to his wealth, then you're really questioning, was he really rich? Because rich means, affluent means, he has it all. Like Esau says, Yeshli kol, I have it all. So if you give me, I have everything, what are you giving me more? And if whatever it is can add to him something more that he didn't have before, is the chassain that he really never had it all. So he wasn't rich. But we're talking that chesed is to give to someone that's rich. I'm not getting into the technical halacha of it. I know the simple explanation is very simple. It's talking about a rich man who happens to find himself in a situation where he needs money right now for a loan, so you have to do a chesed. But we're talking in concept. What, is, what does it mean in concept? Giving chesed to someone who's rich while he's rich. So the answer is obviously that you're giving him something that he doesn't have at all. And it's totally beyond him. It's not more money, more wealth. You're giving him something totally, completely outside of his entire realm. And by giving him that, it's not like you're giving... Before this, he wasn't lacking anything. Because this was outside of his experience completely. It's like something that's outside of our five senses. If you give it to us, it wasn't that we were lacking. It's not even considered rich, because we were totally oblivious to it. It's, it's outside, beyond, beyond. So it says in Kabbalah, let's understand what that means. That if, if giving, if during the time of the Mishkan, Malchus, the, the Shekhinah, the, we restored to Malchus whatever she was lacking, that's called Tzedakah. As a result, Hashem did Tzedakah with the Shekhinah, He gave her whatever she was lacking. Which is a finite light. Meaning, yeah, the, the finite light of God that is somehow related to the creation. When Shlomo Melech was, was king, there was affluence. That's why, by the way, it says in, in the Navi that by Shlomo Melech's time, simply the Jewish people were rich. They weren't lacking anything. And it says so much that money was that. Kesev ain't kesev nechshav. Money didn't have any chashivas. Didn't have any value at all. Because the people were rich. The reason why they were rich, because spiritually we were rich. Finally, what is, that means giving the Shekhinah, Malchus, the infinite light, is shining. Finally, what more can you give? You can't say more infinite light. Because if, if you can give it more, it wasn't really the infinite light. So it must be that the revelation of Mashiach, Chesed, which you give even to the rich, is not a revelation of the infinite light, but it's a revelation of the very essence of God. The essence, not the infinite. The infinite light is still a light of Hashem. It's not Hashem Himself. But what's going to reveal itself in Malchus when Mashiach comes is the essence of God. Now let's understand. I know, okay, the Kabbalistic idea, very nice. What does this all have to do? Please get to the point already. What does it have to do with the world? Please listen, listen, listen. If they hear. What's the difference between these three stages in terms of how it impacts the unholy? This is very important. So in the days of the Mishkan, Kedusha was on the march. Holiness is no more in. Holiness is no more running. We are not being chased. We are not being pursued. We are not on the run. The unholy is on the run. But we needed to some degree wage war with the forces of unholiness. And that's why we marched in the desert. 
And when we marched with the Aaron in the desert, with Moshe, Aaron, 600,000 Jews, the Mishkan, this was such a powerful display of the most powerful army of holiness, powerful forces of Kedusha. And what did Moshe Rabbeinu say when, he, when, he, when, he, when the Jews marched? Vayom Moshe, Kuma Hashem, get up, God, Vayafutsu, Aivechama, your enemies scatter. Now, obviously, there wasn't any physical enemies over there. Most of the time, when they marched in the desert, they weren't confronted with any armies besides Amalek at the beginning. And who were these enemies? These were the forces of demonic forces, satanic forces that reside in the desert. And we went in the desert and broke these forces. But in order for us to destroy it, we needed to go actually and march there. And when we were there, we didn't have to fight. But the, the king had to uproot himself and go into their territory. And only when he was in their territory did they run and they were scattered and they were kind of demolished. But they weren't destroyed completely because it says your enemies should scatter. Should scatter. Why? Because even though Kedusha was powerful, it wasn't the true infinite light. Shining in Malchus. What did we say before? It was only giving the, giving the Shekhinah, giving Malchus, the light that has a, a relationship to her. Not the infinite transcendental light. So, it caused the unholy to run and to escape, but it couldn't vanquish it completely. In the days of Shlomo HaMelech, it says that Shlomo HaMelech was Ish Menucha, a man of peace. Why was Shlomo HaMelech called Ish Menucha, a man of peace? Because he didn't have to fight wars. The reason why he built the base of English is because he didn't have to fight any wars anymore. The reason is because since holiness the Kedusha that was shining in Shlomo, in Shlomo HaMelech's Neshama, and as a result of him in the Beis HaMikdash, was the infinite light of God. And as a result of that, it influenced the entire world, across the world. His renown and his fame went everywhere, and there was no need for war, because there wasn't even one enemy that would dare rear their head and stand up to oppose Kedusha, because it was so pronounced and so strong, because it was the infinite revelation of Hashem in the world. More than that, not only that, it attracted converts. Shlomo Melech attracted converts. People came from far and from wide to hear his wisdom. And what it really meant is the sparks of holiness, which we had discussed in earlier classes, that are buried in, in dark places, because they felt the light, the light came down and they felt it, they felt it and it caused vibrations and it caused these sparks to enable themselves to free themselves from where they were stuck. People that are stuck in certain cultures and certain behaviors, people ran away from their families and they came to Shlomo Melech to learn to be inspired from across the world. But there was still a limitation. What was the limitation? We inspired sparks of holiness and people to come learn. The Queen Sheba came from Ethiopia to Shlomo Melech. She converted. There was a great transformation happening in the world. But we didn't get every African to come to Shlomo Melech. It wasn't every human being across the world. It were those who came, those that were more sensitive to light. Those can sense light came. People, in order to see light, you have to have eyes. If you have eyes, you can see the light. But people that are blind... Or sparks of holiness that became so... Or, you know, when can a spark respond when it feels a big fire and it pulls towards the fire? Only if the spark is still burning. What happens if a spark is extinguished? Then even if there's a big fire burning next to it, it doesn't get pulled because the spark is out. There are sparks of holiness of Hashem that have gotten trapped in darkness in places where it's considered as if the spark is completely extinguished. These are people and these are entities that are unredeemable. 
And these are things that are so low. And more than that, Shlomo Melech only pulled the sparks, but he couldn't transform the very creations themselves, the very entities that are containing the sparks. When Mashiach will come, we will experience a whole transformation. There won't be one spark left in the klipa. Every single person will have an awakening. And even the coarsest, most, most crude, lowly, darkest creatures in the world will recognize their creator. Now why is that? And I want you to hear something very deep. And I, may, I touched upon this last week, but to hear this very deep. When Mashiach will come, it's not going to be a revelation of light, it's going to be a revelation of the divine essence. It's going to be God himself revealing himself. God himself, the Abishter himself, is the essence of everything. There cannot be something that's not him. He is, is, he is, is, is him. He is what is. He is the reality of everything. So as long as God's essence is not expressed in the world, then we experience our existence as us. And even when we are inspired by the divine, God is like something outside of us that we understand and we appreciate. We couldn't exist without him. So it's kind of an enlightenment, an understanding, an appreciation that we have. But, we, it's, but it's still us and Him. Even if we're tzaddikim, even if we're holy, even if, it's still we and God are two things. But when the essence of God is revealed, the essence is the essence of everything. Nothing can, there cannot be anything that's not Him. He is all Isism. So it doesn't make a difference. Even if something is crude, low, dark, once the essence of God, it's almost like, you know what happens? When the essence of Hashem reveals itself, there is this universal synchronization. Everything instantly clicks with its true identity and it automatically, hear these words very clearly, it automatically functions as an expression and in accordance to what God wants because it's not possible for there to be anything in this world that is not exactly the way God wants it. That's going to be the Mashiach revelation. And what did we say now? That revelation is considered chesed, a kindness, where you're giving malchus Something that you can give to a rich man. Even someone who is perfectly rich. You're drawing down energy into this rich being. And what does, what's the consequence that it has on the world? Its consequence that it has on the world is that something that is crude, lowly, dark, yet that thing behaves in accordance to God's will. Once you have these fundamental things, I want to turn now to take a look at what's happening in the world right now. We have witnessed this Friday something horrific. The entire world has stood up a global war on Israel, on the Jewish people, in which it has been stated that our dreams and aspirations, Lashana Habab Yerushalayim, that our Beis Amigdash and our homeland, the palace of God in this world, in which we have been aspiring for, waiting for, praying, crying, dreaming about for thousands of years. And that we're going to come back to our home and it has, been de- it has been decided by the entire that we are occupiers. And that the Western world, the Kaisal Amaravi is not ours and we have no right to be there. The Jewish quarter 
in, in, we have no right to be, those Jews who are living in the Jewish quarter in Jerusalem have absolutely no right to be there. If you're not believing me, listen to what Bibi Netanyahu said. That's what meant, that was decreed in this UN resolution this Friday. Now, what, now here's something that we need to understand. What we need to understand is that this is now the crucial issue. There's nothing else important right now than the establishment, the return of the Jewish people to So, because we finished the work. You listened to last week's share. We finished the work already in the world. The only thing left to do now is for the Jewish people to return to Israel, for our Beis Amigdash to be rebuilt, and from there, from the Holy Temple, God will manifest and higher consciousness will reach the entire universe, the entire world. And everybody will serve God. This great light is ready to come to the world. This is the only reason we can explain why there is a gang up and why right now, at this point in history, is where the klipa, the other side, has irrationally, insanely, because as has been pointed out by the Prime Minister in Israel and by, by every normal human being looking at this, you see the Middle East is up in flames, country after country, atrocities after atrocities, people murdering, killing, butchering, children, babies, the worst atrocities, and yet the ultimate criminal in the world, the worst people in the world are the Jewish people who claim that Israel is their homeland because we have absolute evidence we've been there for thousands of years. Okay, and now what did the UN first say a couple of months ago? That there's no historical evidence of any Jewish connection to Jerusalem. I mean, the lies are so blatant, they're so horrible, but don't you see, anybody alive now can see with clear eyes that this is a fight of the Satan. This is a horrific, last, despicable act coming from our president who is leading a war, a horrible, literally a, a snake that has just bit, he's been waiting and lurking, to come out and to bite in such a horrific way and to delegitimize, and delegitimize our connection to Eretz Yisrael. And this, it is huge. This is not a little thing what happened this Friday. It's horrible. It's beyond now. Why? Now, one thing is for sure. Kalipa is now coming to its end. The evil is being destroyed. And it's, you know, when a fire goes out, watch your menorah. Right before it goes out, it gives a last flutter. It flares up one more time. This is the flare-up. And they're fighting. They're fighting because the moment this light is revealed, that which is anti-godly in this world is destroyed forever. And they're terrified of that. And that's why BDS, college campuses, European nations, Yishmael, Edom, everybody across the board, with unified to do one thing. What they don't realize is that they're messing, they're messing with they're messing with, not just with Hashem. There have been many who have messed with Hashem. They're messing with Hashem's deepest, innermost desire more than anything else. Read the Yehichavod. I noticed this in davening this week. We say this every day in davening. And I think we might not notice. Everybody knows the phrase, Mensch, la, mensch tracht in, in Gott lacht. That it's a Yiddish phrase to say, People can laugh, people can think and scheme all kinds of things, and God laughs and he does whatever he wants. Everybody's, a, everybody's familiar with the Pasuk, Rabois, Machshavois, Belevish. Lots of thoughts are in the hearts of man. Vatsas Hashem and the counsel of God, He Sukkum. This will stand. What people are not aware of is the context of what we're saying this in. 
You see, in what thing, in what thing do we say, in which aspect do we say, that God is going to have the last word? In which thing? In regards to what? It could be a million things. Let me tell you in regards to what. Let's read the Pesukim. I'm just going to read and translate. You tell me what it says over here. Hashem melech olam vo'ed. God will be king forever. Avdu goyem me'artso. He will, uh, he will chase away nations. He will chase away goyem nations. Me'artso from his land. Number one. Hashem hefir. God is going to distort and, 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 and is going to annul atzas goyim, the council of nations. Who is the council of nations that God is going to distort? Haini, he's going to block machshavos amim, the thoughts of nations. Where is that happening? Where? UN, right? Rabbis machshavos belevish, a lot of thoughts in the hearts of man, vatzas Hashem and the, and the council of God, he sakum, this is what's going to stand. Atzas Hashem, the council of God, the Olam Tamot stands forever. Machshavos Libay, the thoughts of his heart, Ledor Vador for generation after generation. Okay, this is what God, this is going to prevail. Hear these words. Kihu Omar, because he said, Vayehi, and it will be. Hutsiva, he commanded, Vayamod, and it will stand. In regards to what? What is God commanding? He's going to destroy what the nations are planning. In regards to what? Look at the next Pasuk. It's all because of one thing. Kivachar Hashem B'Tzion. God has selected Tzion. That's Yerushalayim. This is Hashem's choice. Eva, He desired that this should be His seat. He desired that place to be His home. And He's not going to take permission from Obama and from who knows who, Schwarz across the world. He doesn't care what they say. And whoever is going to try to chas v'shalom get up and get in the way of God having his home in Yerushalayim. Now you'll think, oi, so why doesn't he just blow the whole thing up in one second if they're bothering him? The answer is anybody that knows a little bit, Hasidus understands that Hashem did that already in Mitzrayim. He blew all his enemies away. That's not what he wants. He wants that the world from within itself should purify itself and come to an internal recognition of this word belongs to God. He doesn't want it to happen through a miracle. Of course he can blow that, that mosque off that place and build the base of English in a second. But that's not what's going to happen. That's not what's supposed to happen. The world from within itself. So, But there are forces in the world that stand and try whatever they can. A last ditch, and you're seeing it in this president, the last ditch before he gets out of the White House, Baruch Hashem, is making that last ditch to try to stop it. And in a nasty trick has really if that's true what the Israelis are saying, has orchestrated a gang up of the entire world to stop the Jewish people. Horrible, horrible. But as we say, Hashem says, So what happened just two, three weeks, four weeks ago? A stunning election. A stunning victory. Something that didn't make sense based on any expert across the world. No one believed it was going to happen. It was impossible to happen. And God meddles with the whole thing once, and he tweaks, and he fights, and, and, and he hacks the system again and again. And Comey comes up with a whole story with an FBI thing a week before the election. And again, and you see the hand of God. Whoever doesn't see it is blind. But most people are worried. This Trump guy, who in the world is he? 
He's a low life. Did you ever see a human being so crude? How can he even be president? So low, so dark, so, so, so vulgar, vulgar, vulgarity in his mouth, the way he spoke about women, the way he treated women, the way he, I mean, come on, this is the guy, this is the guy you want in the White House? So even though we're not happy with the woman who's kissing Arafat's wife, even though we're not happy with someone who's been in cahoots with the Palestinians already way back then, if God forbid, God forbid, she would be becoming president now, after this was illegitimized, after the whole world declared that Israel is illegal, imagine what kind of tsarist she would have led. She would have forced us to the negotiations table and forced us to give up everything. Do you realize the miracle that God did? And here Trump, a person who who, as we said before, not necessarily the most refined human being, in some mysterious way that doesn't make any sense, the most hot, the hottest political element going on right now is his ambassador that he chose to Israel, which is going to set, as we spoke last week, his policy towards Israel. And what is his ambassador? David Friedman is his name. This ambassador guy, fellow has clearly, he makes Netanyahu look like a leftist. His ideas and policies are there will never be a two-state there will never be a divided Jerusalem. Jews will settle all over Israel. Now, do you understand how not one president, not just president, has any person, me or you, goes into a place with other people and even suggests the idea that we're not going to have two-state solution, it's like you're a radical, you're a whore, how dare you say that, you're just a whatever, you're an occupier, you're a monster. No one would dare, even Netanyahu is afraid to say it, that there will never be a Palestinian state. Because the world has created such a big fat lie. Such a lie, because Kalipa is a liar. And has created such a dark lie, that everybody's afraid to contest it. Besides one person, who couldn't care less about what anybody thinks of him, and that's Donald Trump. With who? And he appoints the most radical type of uh, ambassador to this. Even Jews are afraid because they're terrified of this guy is going to sound too extreme. But these are the ways of God. These are the ways of Hashem and he's going to be successful. He's going to be tremendously successful. And as I spoke last week, this is clearly the reunification of Yaakov and Esau. We spoke last week how Trump has all the symbolic symbolisms of Esau. He's a redhead. He's impulsive. He's, he's, he has every character trait that, that Esau represented and yet and here's the thing what did we say earlier why is he doing the godly thing not through inspiration it's because when the revelation of the essence of God is it reaches even the, even something very low that cannot be that cannot be sensitive to holiness and it, and it intrinsically synchronizes itself with God's will do you hear that it intrinsically, not through inspiration, but it's just, it just does. And I'm not saying that, God, that, that, that Trump is a religious believer, he's not wearing payas and shuckling 40. Please. Do you realize you're dealing with somebody who intrinsically, naturally, now, by the way, this week's parasha, we also see that events that are happening in the palace of Paro and Mitzrayim, don't think that I'm making this stuff up just to, events that happen in big political places, it's all about the Jewish people. You see from Parshas Mikay, it's Paro dreams, seven famine years, and I am telling you that what's happening now in the United States, first of all, this gang up is very well could be what the prophecy spoke about, the war of Gog and Magog. It doesn't have to be a physical battle. 
It says that all the nations will come against Jerusalem. It definitely will not be a physical battle because we've paid our price already with the Holocaust. It's not going to be a physical battle. What we saw Friday was the war of Gog and Magog. It's every single nation. The entire world ganging up on the Jewish people saying that that land is not... This is what it is. And what did God do? A man like... But here's where I'm connecting to what we said before. He becomes leader. And what does it say in Kabbalah? And what does it say in Hasidot? What does it say? It says that the ultimate kingship of Mashiach is going to be Hashem's, inf, Hashem's essence shining into Malchus. And what does that mean? It means that he's giving light even to a rich man. It's chesed. Trump is a billionaire. He doesn't need anything. And he wasn't given more wealth. He was given something that is completely outside of his picture. Outside of his realm. Completely way beyond so, now, I'm not saying Trump is Mashiach. What I am saying is that symbolic in him rising, rising to be, to be king now, so to speak, of the world, the most powerful influ- influence in the world, is symbolic of Mashiach's kingdom, where the energy that's flowing into Malchus is an energy that's going to a rich man. It's, a, it's something. And that is, what I'm saying is that Trump will be the instrument of Mashiach. And again, as I'm saying, I, I can't, you know, I'm just me, I'm not a prophet. But from everything I'm learning, it all fits. And, and, and here's the thing, and only that revelation, only the revelation of this infinite essence, or the essence of God revealed to, revealed in Malchus, is what takes the lowest element. So in Trump, you see both things. You see the power from where the rectification is happening, and you see its effect. Its effect is on someone who's crude, who can do the godly thing. Unbelievable. It's unreal what is happening. And in Hasidus I saw this week, this is, this is maybe stretching it a little bit, but in the Hasidus that I saw this week, I noticed one interesting thing. There is a Zohar this week, in Parshas, right? I'm just going to say one more word, in where it says that the, Hashem was trying to get the Tess and the Reish to come together. And the Tess was telling the Reish, I couldn't believe that, I fell upon this yesterday. And the Tess is saying to the Reish, Tess says to God, I am going to come together with, with the Reish. I'm toiv, I'm good. Reish is ra, is bad. How can I come together with the Reish? So God says, listen here, the two of you must get together. Because only when the test, the toiv, is going to rectify the ra, inside the bad is hidden the deepest sparks. And when that's elevated, the Reish is much greater and you're going to benefit from it. So Tess and Reish, you got to go get together. The way it is explained by the Alter Rebbe, by his son, by the Mittler Rebbe, is that the ultimate rectification happens when Tess and Reish get together, and the Tess fixes the Reish. And then it occurred to me, Trump starts with a Tess and with a Reish. And I don't think it's a little, just a little thing. We're talking about the completion of rectification. And you think I'm not, this is not a little thing. This fits on all levels. He's the 45th president of the United States. America began the first refinement of the world, where you can notice what the Jewish people accomplished in the world, began with America. Because America's constitution was the first refined expression of holiness in this world. And in Kabbalah, that's called number 45, the God's name associated with with the Yud Kevavke, the name Ma fixes Ban, the name of 52. For those familiar with Kabbalistic ideas, the shattered world that's broken is associated with 52. 
and that needs to be fixed by the name of the name of 45, Yudke Vavke. So George Washington was the first purification. And it took 45 presidents, higher, 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 until we reached the 45th, which is the name Ma, which represents the complete. And I said last week, he's going to become president on the, when he's 70 years old, seven months, seven days, purification of seven on all levels. I mean, you, this thing is so deep, but I, but I think we noticed the miracle, the miracle we noticed, because I think till now some people were confused, is it bad, is it good? You realize what happened on this Friday? Do you realize where the world was heading to? What it was planning? What dark thing it was, it was preparing to? Realize that this is not a little thing because this legitimizes terrorism. It legitimizes boycotting everything of Israel. It, it legitimizes that people should look at a Jew on the street and say, you Jew, you're an occupier. How dare you? The, you're the source of evil in the world. That's what it would be. Do you realize? This is what we're talking about. And God already had fixed it before the whole problem began. How, what, where, and when, I don't know, but I know that every aspect in his rise to power, first, whenever you see a miracle, something extraordinary happening, you know that God is doing it. So the fact that he was able to take power and become the president, and it's it's telling you that there's something behind it. But I think till Friday, we didn't really realize what's going on. But I think from all angles, understanding that this is called Ashiras, not Ashiris, it's beyond Ashiris, which we give to a rich man. Understanding all the aspects of Esav himself, Wiley's Esav and Lo, transformed to Kedusha. This is what it is. May Hashem help us that we should see the revelation, the completion of it all, and may we experience the coming of Mashiach now. And wait, and that answers the question I didn't finish. Why Hanukkah, we light the menorah not indoors and shine outdoors, but we light the menorah outside. Why? Indoor shining outdoors would represent the light of Shlomo Melech, which is holiness coming from Yerushalayim, and that holiness inspires those, do our, those that are inspirable. Lining the menorah outside means that the very outside itself, the very ice itself turns into fire. The very darkness itself is converted inherently from within the darkness itself. It's not like Hanukkah is the, is the light of Mashiach. Hanukkah is that very light. It's not light, it's essence. And essence, you don't have to have... It's, when essence is revealed, the holiness doesn't come from Yerushalayim. The holiness comes from every place. The truth is evident. The truth sprouts forth. And godliness is automatic. That's the trigger, but it happens throughout the whole world. Are you going to say, oh, hold it, I don't see the whole world suddenly recognizing God. Chochem. Of course you don't see the whole world. The fact that the President of the United States is doing God's will in that which is the most important, that is a symbol that this idea is starting. It's gonna, it, but once it starts and it breaks through, it's, gonna, it's infectious. It's going to reveal itself and it's going to manifest. Our avoda is now to really be vigilant, to really put in all of our work in increasing our Torah and mitzvahs, and recognizing that today's days we don't need to wait for inspiration to hold holy, to be holy, but rather our natural condition of our body should be synchronized with what Hashem wants. That's what we're talking about. And that's the ultimate revelation. May we merit to see it, to experience it now.